Welcome to the Your K-12 Fundraising Coach Podcast, your weekly mini masterclass designed to give you the tools to crush your goals with less stress. I'm your host, Kim Jennings, a veteran faith-based school frontline fundraiser and certified fundraising executive, a consultant, trainer, coach, and passionate ally for leaders and future leaders serving in Christian schools across the U.S. After nearly two decades in the industry, I'm here to share with you what I've learned and continue to learn from my failures and successes and to bring you insightful conversations with great leaders. If you're a Christian school leader looking for tested strategies to banish the tyranny of the urgent and raise more money within a stronger, thriving team, and you're looking to grow your school's culture of generosity, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Your K-12 Fundraising Coach Podcast. Hello again, listeners. I am so delighted to share with you today a conversation that I had with Dr. R. Mark Dillon. He is the executive vice president and founder of Total Advancement Solutions, the division of Generis that focuses on Christian schools, higher education, and nonprofits. It's the division with Generis that I work with. So Mark is my colleague at TAS, and I am delighted to also call him a friend. He's also my former boss. He was the vice president for advancement at Wheaton College in Illinois for 19 years. It's one of the great institutions that I served as a fundraiser and was so delighted to be on the team when he was leading it. Mark has spoken on topics related to giving and getting in the kingdom at gatherings for CASE, He's talked at Christian Stewardship Association. He's spoken at the Association of Theological Schools and also the Chief Advancement Officer Gatherings of the Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities. He's also spoken at the Next Summit, which is a gathering for Christian K-12 school leaders at Gordon College. Mark is a consultant to universities and seminaries and schools, and there Mark shares his decades of experience and wisdom, and I asked him to join me in this conversation so that he could share that wisdom with you. Mark wrote a fabulous book called Giving and Getting in the Kingdom, A Field Guide. This book is a fantastic book. I cannot recommend it enough. I I do recommend it to all my clients, and it is considered a standard guide to fundraising in the Christian realm. What I love about Mark's book is that it gives a solid philosophical and biblical understanding of fundraising, but it also gives practical applications to being a stronger fundraiser. In the conversation I had with Mark, we talked about why focusing on relationships rather than tactics is the most important thing you can do in fundraising. And we talked about how to do that in the midst of a busy K-12 world. We'll also cover the four types of givers, which have nothing to do with the amount of money that they're giving, but everything to do with our relationship to money and where we see our money in the context of our relationship with God. And finally, Mark and I talk about the head of school's role as chief development officer, why he says that in his book, how a K-12 school leader can get more comfortable with being their school's chief development officer and how a development director can support their head in becoming more comfortable with that role. It's a fantastic conversation full of incredible gems of wisdom, and I'm so delighted to share Mark with you. 
I love talking with him and I learn from him every time we meet. And I know that this conversation will bless you today as well. And make sure to stay tuned through the end of the conversation where I'm going to break down a few of the things that he talks about and how you can apply those in your everyday work as a K-12 fundraiser. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mark. I am really delighted to have some time with you and I appreciate you spending time to talk with me. You've led teams for a long, long time, been a long time fundraiser. And so we really appreciate your time here today to share with our K-12 leaders about how they can be stronger fundraisers. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Really happy to do so, Kim. Thank you. So Jim Langley, if folks who are listening aren't aware of who Jim Langley is, he's just a longtime fixture and leader in our space as a fundraiser. He said about you that, and this is the quote, that you are one of the very best fundraising consultants on the planet. And he said it was because you were such a committed, conscientious, and successful practitioner for so long. I can attest to what a great fundraiser you are. And so I'd love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know, how did you get your start in fundraising? Probably like most people listening, I didn't grow up on my mother's knee saying I want to be a fundraiser when I grew up. But I attended a Christian college and went to a seminary. And as we were approaching candidating for a church, I knew that I wanted to be a leader in a nonprofit organization in my future. I just thought it would come after the pastorate. But as it happened, there was a position open at the seminary. So we had a choice between a church and staying on at the seminary and what became the first capital campaign they'd done in many years. And I was uh, pleased and flattered that they had that kind of confidence in me. And I knew enough about development to know that I thought I would like doing it. So I I moved that direction, did a crash course at Notre Dame University that first summer to get the basics of fundraising, came back and applied some of those things that I learned. And lo and behold, we, um, we raised the money that we needed to raise. And I've been in fundraising ever since. I love that you just knew that it was coming. Like you, you felt that it was something that you would be really good at and that you just dove in, that you were really, it's pretty brave to just jump right in. And also it shows a real sense of the folks who hired you that they knew that they sort of innately knew that you you had the chops for it. And so it speaks to their leadership ability as well. I asked you to come on the podcast because I wanted to talk with you about your book, Giving and Getting in the Kingdom, A Field Guide, which is a book that I've read many times and I recommend it to my clients. And when I talk with leaders across the country and I like at a conference recently, and I was like, this is a great book. Well, half of them had already read it. It's a fantastic book, highly recommended, about giving and getting and being in fundraising, specifically in kingdom work. So I'd love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would too, why did you write this book? What did you hope to accomplish with it? It's interesting because I I had probably 90% of the outline of the book done for about 20 years. It's something I always wanted to put to paper And it's what I learned about by interacting with amazing givers and amazing administrators, what I learned about the ministry of fundraising, what I learned about the mind of the giver, what do they care about and what do they like, what puts them off. Those are things that I that have been I've learned through the years that I wanted to have an opportunity to convey. And the only reason I had the opportunity to convey that I was, as you mentioned, at Wheaton College for 19 years. And toward the end of that tenure, the uh, 
the president and the trustees gave me the privilege of a four month sabbatical to write that book. It wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have gotten that break to do it, but I'm really glad they did that. Yeah, that's a huge investment in the kingdom that they allowed because it's, you know, your book and the wisdom that you share in it and the ideas and the tactics, the strategies, the philosophies that you share in it are really paying dividends for the kingdom. And we appreciate that. One of the things that I witnessed and you talk about in your book, it's really clear that you are relationship oriented. And I think that it's pretty clear that the strategies, you know what you're doing, you have really good strategies and you're a great leader of fundraisers. But I think it all comes down to relationship. That's one of the aspects in our sector everyone's talking about right now, that there's so much of a marketing aspect. There's this huge tactical thing and all of these ways that we're trying to just get in front of donors. But really, it's all about relationships and trying to reorient our work as fundraisers for that. In the K-12 world, as you, since you've worked with them too, there's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure to be able to raise a lot of money in a short period of time. The annual fund is a constant drive. And then there's the capital campaigns on top of it. Tell us how you developed the posture of relationship-oriented fundraising and how powerful it's been for you and your success in raising money for the kingdom. Yeah, I learned early that even people of significant wealth value authenticity and they value relationship. And the one thing that frustrates a lot of people with wealth is that a lot of us assume they should just give to us because they have a lot of money. We come to them with with our ideas and our plans. And the only thing we want from them is how big a check are you going to write to help us do what we want to do? And I figured out early that doesn't get the best gift. The best gift is people that think with you, pray with you, challenge you on some of your ideas. And if you let them in in that way, And if you genuinely care about them, then a relationship does develop that makes them feel much more comfortable in giving and much more trusting of the institution that you serve. Yeah. You talk about there's one particular instance where the giver, you probably can recall, I don't want to give away the line, but the giver says, with my money... Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah tell us I that do. story. Yeah, <laughs> this was a, a very wealthy person in our orbit who really had not given much to our institution and uh, wouldn't let us very close to him. And we had him around a table toward the end of my tenure at this institution. And I could tell he wanted to get something off of his chest. And he said, I always get the feeling with you guys that with your ideas and my money, we can go a long way. <laughs> And what a piercing line. I didn't take it personally because he never let me close enough to have a relationship with him. But it was a great warning for me that if we don't involve givers and care about what they care about, we're not going to get very far. How would you advise K-12 leaders who are in that position? Certainly, you've experienced it by working with K-12s. I see it all the time. Parents, in particular K-12 schools, Alumni who want to be involved, who want to be close, who want to do more than just invest their money. How would you recommend that leaders begin to work that out in their own selves? Because they're busy leaders trying to get things done, too. So letting people close is hard, perhaps. Yeah, it is. And it's a little it can be risky, too. You'll hear ideas that you're not crazy about and you'll have to tell them no. And I would just say, in my experience, even when someone comes up with an idea that is just untenable 
for us. Mm -hmm. if, if we thoughtfully think it through and get back to him or her and say, you know what, here's why we can't do that right now or don't feel like we should make it a priority right now. We've had a few instances like that, and those people become closer friends, not farther away, because we've said no, because we thoughtfully went, went about considering what they were talking about. I totally get that a head of school is so busy that to be an open book in a relationship with 100 people, 100 parents is just impossible to do. And that's why I would much rather, and I give this counsel to CEOs and heads of school all the time, I'd much rather see you focus on 10 or 12 individuals than 50 or 60 individuals. You'll raise a lot more money if you do that. And go through the process with your director of development and say, who are people I have natural affinity with, who have high potential, who I can very consciously build a relationship with? And that would be the way to do that. I would say also, if you want to involve somewhat larger groups of people, maybe having councils or ad hoc committees just on special projects. As you're thinking about a building project. Invite in five or six key people outside of your board even and just pick their brains and they will appreciate that you care about their opinion. And it's a way that you can have a touch point with them without a long-term commitment to, to have them inside your organization all the time. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, I agree. I think, what is the adage? If you ask for money, you'll get an opinion. If you ask for their opinion, you'll get money. I don't know that's always true, but <laughs> it certainly helps to to grow that relationship when you care about more than just what they can give. Let's do something else. And this is not a sales pitch, but Kim, you know that we do feasibility studies for organizations. And that is a great exercise in eliciting opinions of key stakeholders to the school. And they will tell you things that they probably wouldn't say to the head of school face to face. Mm -hmm. But it's that kind of feedback. And if we truly listen and it affects the outcome of what we, the shape of the campaign, then you've really well prepared them for the head of school or the director of development to follow up with a specific ask. So true. Yeah, it's exactly right. When we've had feasibility studies, which we've worked on those together, and when it's just given such great feedback and opportunity for the school leaders to go back and to develop further those conversations, really powerful results as well. This episode is sponsored by my digital course, Onboarding New Parents with Purpose, a proven plan for increasing generosity, which I designed especially for you with a suite of tools, templates, and resources that will help you be successful regardless of what month you start your journey with me. I crafted this course when leader after leader asked me, how do we move from transactional giving to heart-led, generous giving from every giver regardless of the amount of their gift? How do we really cultivate a culture of generosity? This course will help you raise more money in your school using real-world methods designed to work in every school environment every size school, because they're based on human behavior and community, not fancy expensive events or tons of staff power. My course is full of practical strategies, effective actions you can take every month, every year to grow generosity in your new parents, cohort after cohort, changing the culture of your entire parent community. 
Learn more and sign up for my digital course, Onboarding New Parents with Purpose, a proven plan for increasing generosity at kimtjennings.com slash culture of generosity. In your book, you talk about one of the, I think I've mentioned it earlier in our conversation. The One of the things I like about your book is it has ideas about the philosophy of giving and get, giving and getting in the kingdom, but also has very practical matters as well about how to go about doing it well. I want to back up to the philosophy part. And you talk about four types of givers that you've developed this idea. And I'd love to have you describe to the listeners about what are these four types of givers? Yeah, it's interesting, Kim, because this is, I probably get more comments on this. This resonates with a lot of people who read the book and it sticks with them. And it's a realization for a lot of people that, you know, in our orbit, most of our donors are followers of Christ, but there's different levels of maturity in terms of giving. And sometimes we assume when we write direct mail appeals or when we have meetings that every giver is alike. And my experience is there are at least four kinds of givers. And I'll go quickly through this, Kim, but hopefully it'll be a little bit of help. The first, unfortunately, is the reluctant giver. And it's one of those things when you look at at the church or Christian community in contrast to the, the culture at large, a lot of times there's not a huge amount of difference in attitudes and actions. And that reluctant giver is probably, in my experience, it's about 40% of the people that we talk to. They usually haven't grown up with a model of a generous life, so they don't. They haven't really been trained or haven't had a role model in that area. So for them, talk of giving is off-putting. Their basic attitude is, my money is my business, and how dare you talk to me about my money? Well, that's sad, but true. And then there's what I would call the casual giver, and th- this is the follower of Christ who gives more out of obligation than joy. Usually, those are the people we need to ask. And those are the ones we go and visit. Those are the ones we write direct mail appeals to. A lot of casual givers tend to tip God rather than give generously mm-hmm. to the kingdom. And their calculation is, how much of my money should I give to God? Mm-hmm. And then there's a the thoughtful giver. And these are the people pretty much on our major donor list. And we're not talking about just wealthy people here, by the way. Wealthy people have these characteristics People of small means have the same characteristics. These are more, these are more personality traits that have to and disciplines that have to be that have to be grown. Mm. A thoughtful giver has a real awareness of God's call on their life and possessions. They take some pleasure in giving for sure. It might be tinged with a little bit of hesitation, but they do see that God owns the universe. And he's given us the gifts that we have, including financial gifts, and there's some pleasure in giving back. Their calculation is how much of God's money should I give back to him? And that's, as you can see, that shows a little bit more maturity. And then there's that that wonderful group. And I can tell everyone that's listening, if you have an orbit of 50 or more givers, you have at least several gifted givers in that group. Mm. They seldom need to be asked. They take great joy in giving. Their biggest question is not if I should give or how much, but to whom should I give? And that's where 
us being in relationship with them and helping them understand the opportunities for the kingdom in the work that we do usually results in big gifts. And I love people like this because their question is, how much of God's money should I really keep? And that's how you know you have a gifted giver on your hands. And I, I could share several examples, and Kim, you probably know who I'm talking about, of gifted givers who really, what they want to know is what's next? What can we do next that will help this institution grow and will strengthen the kingdom of God? Yeah. Tell us that story that you share in the book about the leader who was at the building opening. Yeah, sure. Yeah. This was a building dedication on our campus. And the person who gave the, the gift, nobody knew except the president and myself and just a handful of others that he had given the key gift that made this building possible. And um, about halfway through the reception there, he called me into one of the conference rooms in that building. And I thought, oh, no, we've done something to, to disappoint him. Yeah. And instead, he said, Mark, what's next? He was already thinking ahead to what else he could invest in. He wasn't, we talk about donor burnout. He wasn't anywhere near burned out because he got the joy of, of participating in something that had much more meaning than anything else he had done. And he wanted to invest even more in God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. So if identify those gifted givers, stay close to them and help them see what they can do with their resources on behalf of the kingdom through your institution. Yeah, so powerful. And for our listeners, can you, how long did it take for that relationship to develop? Would you say? Quite honestly, this person was, hadn't given at these levels, but he had been giving to the institution for many years. Mm -hmm. But he was the kind of person where we would talk about our own families, our own journey of generosity. And by the way, I think that's really important for those of us that are leading and asking for gifts to be growing in our own generosity. But that that period of giving, and he was a very significant giver, was about almost about a 20-year period. Mm -hmm. And I'll just give you one other, one other example just to prove that they don't have to be cajoled to give. When we had a major campaign, he called me and he said, I'm flying into O'Hare. Will you come down and meet with me? I got something I want to talk to you about. And um, went to that meeting and he said, my son and I are running this business. I think it's going to be good for our business and good for my son if we give a stretch gift. And that was that gift turned out to be north of $20 million to us. And again, I didn't even have to get on a plane to ask him that question. He got on a plane to tell me. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I love the fact that it's very inspiring. And the fact that there are gifted givers in our communities and in our schools, we just haven't necessarily identified them just yet. And or we, have, we know some of them, but maybe not all of them. Or we don't have an audacious enough idea and plan mm -hmm. that captures their imagination. Yes, so good. And I, in K-12 schools, it's really challenging sometimes to get it all done. And so I think this would be a call for folks to invest the time in the one-to-one -one meetings and the one-to-one -one conversations. That leads me to the last thing I wanted to talk to you about today, which is the in your book, you talk about and I 100% agree with this, that the leader of the school so the, or the president of a college or the head of a school for a K-12 school 
is the chief development officer. So regardless of what other development staff you have, this person is the chief development officer. And first, what leads you to say that? Yeah. If the leader of the organization models what he wants, he or she wants those in the development department to do, they need to be out in front of people, building those relationships, asking for those gifts. If there is not trust, confidence in the leader, in the head of school, people are not going to give their best gift. And there are some that will be happy to have a visit from the director of development or another major gift officer they're fine with that. There are others who run in circles where they only talk with CEOs. And if you are shy about having those kinds of conversations or not really good at having those kind of conversations, that's an area that you can grow in as a leader. I can just tell you the schools that are doing the very best have a head of school who really gets what his or her role is and has a real trust in that director of development to make sure that the head of school is only doing the things that only the head of school can do and should do. And then also making sure that you pick up the pieces and if there are other things that that only you can do as a director of development, then you do that. And if you develop that level of trust, if the head of school has trust that Director of development is going to get them in the right place at the right time with the right information. Then you've got a dynamic relationship. If you don't have that, you might need to reconsider if you've got the right combination there. And part of it is not all heads of school have training in fundraising and are comfortable in it. So just make that a growth area as head of school. I'm going to be a better fundraiser and I'm going to I'm going to talk to someone like Kim about how to make time to be a good fundraiser. Yeah, it's so true. We when we talk with recruiters, conferences and such or just recruiters that we are friends with professionally and they tell us that's a real area of growth as they're looking to hire new heads of school, that is something that is usually the thing that keeps somebody from moving forward in the process is that they don't have a strong fundraising background. And so it's okay if you are a head of school and you don't have a strong fundraising background, if you came from the academic realm, if you came up from a different aspect, it's okay that you don't, you can't be perfect in all aspects, but understanding that's a growth area is a really key aspect of being able to lead your school as the chief development officer. Yeah. And I'm sure you can agree with me on this, Kim. It's really fulfilling to see a CEO who, who it kind of the light comes on and they say, I see how this is done. And I see how important it is to, to ask. And actually, it's fun to bring in those kind of gifts that help fund all the ideas that my board and I have for the school. So true. I had a head of school tell me one time that it was really a tremendous blessing as well, because she gets a front row seat to what the Lord is doing in her school. I mean, what an incredible opportunity to see what the Lord is doing. But if she didn't take those steps, she wouldn't have that perspective, perhaps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What what kind of steps would you say if you are a head of school who's either don't have a lot of experience or don't have a lot of confidence? What kind of steps can would you recommend for heads of school to take to yeah. grow in this area? I'm guessing at places like CESA and others, there there is some there are some seminars that are helpful in that realm. 
I think it doesn't take a ton of coaching, but I think if you find a consultant who thinks like you about giving and is experienced in asking for a gift, just spending a few hours with you on on why we should ask, how we should ask, how we should follow up, and maybe brainstorming on a couple of the key solicitations they need to make. And even role play. What are some objections you might have? What are you going to ask for? And are you going to stick to that? Just a little bit of coaching from someone who's done it can give you all you need to know to be a lifelong good fundraiser. And on the flip side, what can a director of development who is in the role, and I hear this pretty often, the director of development is wanting their head of school to be a little stronger in this area or less reluctant. How can they support that? I, I think putting them in, in the right positions where they can succeed. And, and like I said at the beginning, I would much rather have the head of school focus on 10 individuals than 50 individuals. So it does, So it's not overwhelming. And you can also help a busy head of school by saying, you know what, we've got a birthday coming up. For this individual, you need to send a card or this has happened in their family. Can you pick up the phone and give them a give them a call? We can help our head of school be good in the fundraising realm. And I think as they grow and see the benefit of that and as the board sees how important it is for the head of school to be a good fundraiser, that ability will grow and it won't be like pulling teeth in year three as it might be in year one. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with our listeners and for spending some time with me. And and I appreciate it. Thanks so much for all you're doing for our schools and for all you're doing for the kingdom. And thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thank you, Kim. My conversation with Mark covered several areas. We talked about relationship-oriented development work, working with people who are wealthy and walking the journey with them in meaningful ways. We talked about stewardship and partnering with our donors. And we also talked about the four types of givers. I want to drill down on one particular aspect related to our work in K-12 fundraising. Based on what Mark has seen in schools across the country and in nonprofits and schools over his very long career, he says that we have gifted givers in our schools. That right there is another reason why we need to be prioritizing, even in the tyranny of the urgent and when we are trying to do the one-to-many kinds of aspects of our work, especially in annual giving. We're working on appeals. We're working on social media and volunteer management, events, all of the things that are on our plates as K-12 fundraisers. But if we are not holding higher the prioritization of one-to-one meetings, we're never going to meet those gifted givers, working with donors individually as best we can. I know we can't do it all, but one-to-one donor work deserves a higher place in our to-do list. In our schools, most often we'll see casual givers as well. As Mark says, and what I've experienced, the best way to engage casual givers and to grow them in that journey is through dialogue. I always say that fundraising is a dialogue, not a monologue, which is a cheesy way of saying we really have to be in conversation with our donors, engaging them one-on-one in small groups. We need to be engaging them in conversation from the start with new parent events. That whole first year with new parents is a really critical time of establishing that relationship off on the right foot. 
You can have great conversation and dialogue with casual givers and donors of all kinds mid-year with intimate gatherings with your higher capacity folks. Perhaps you haven't yet engaged them. That mid-year time when there's a bit of a dip in our development schedule, that's helpful. If you are having a spring gala, like so many schools are, and so your winter might be consumed with beginning to ramp up to that, may I encourage you to set aside time and have those conversations with your higher capacity folks, with your casual donors who could grow. You're more likely then to identify those gifted givers and to grow your casual givers into greater, more generous supporters of your school. And if you are planning that spring gala, I would argue that having those one-to-one conversations with those folks is even more important for the success of your gala. You never want to go into your gala not knowing the kind of money that is going to come out of the gala. I've made that mistake before, and it's a really tough lesson to learn. If you are having ongoing one-to-one conversations with donors, it will make your gala even more successful and it grows relationships with the donors. A gala should not be a tactic that stands on its own anyway. A gala is just one tool in your toolbox. We always want to be growing relationships. How can we engage in conversations with our donors? How can we engage our casual givers, grow them up? How can we identify our gifted givers? We're going to get on that field sideline. We're going to go to the school plays, the band concerts, a Christmas concert. We're going to be engaged in the life of our school. Be strategic when you are meeting with these folks at these school events. Don't just chat with them. Be really strategic in how you're having those conversations. Know who you're targeting, who you want to have the conversations with, and remember to follow up. Every single interaction with a donor is an opportunity to grow the relationship. There should never be an interaction that doesn't have some sort of next step in your mind that will grow that relationship and further cement their desire to support your school and your mission. But if you're going to events at night often, what does that mean in terms of your work-life balance? Does it mean that you need to be at work one or more nights a week in addition to all your days? No, I don't encourage that at all. I think that's a recipe for burning out. But it is important that we're having these natural and authentic interactions with our donors. So do your best to plan accordingly. Try to go in a little bit later on the days that are going to be late. Work with your vice president or your head to work out those details so that you are getting some comp time. You do need to have a sense of balance. When I was in a school and I I needed to bring my kids in for the start of the school day, so it didn't make sense for me to go in later on the days that I was working in the nights because I, I literally had to take my kids to school. So in those instances, have a conversation that perhaps you can secure some comp time because you do need to have a break. I am thinking about you as you serve, and I'm praying for a great return on the investment of your time and energy, my development friends. If you like what you've heard today, please do consider subscribing. And if anything I've said is helpful for you today, or you know someone who can use what we talked about, please share it with them. And I would love that. Thank you for your partnership in that. Thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next time.